why do I do what I do? Um, I do it because I do get a personal fulfillment, but also I think it's it's imperative right now for us to start using the this data at our fingertips uh, in ways that actually mobilize change. Because we all know that the data can help persuade people on issues. But we're also in a time where data is being misused, misrepresented, but it's also being underrepresented uh, to where, where critical data points are getting lost in industry jargon or scientific language or giant texts that no one's ever going to read. And because I've, I've had the opportunity to realize early on in my design career that when you put the data in the hands of the people that are most affected by that issue, then I'm, I feel like a weapon maker. Jessica Bellamy is an information designer. She tells visual stories using data and personal narratives. She started her design career working with nonprofits and community groups to create visuals that break down complex service and policy information. In 2015, she created a small design agency called Grids, the grassroots information design studio. She creates infographics for social change. In this episode, we talk about how design can be used as a tool to help fight for social justice and the problem with assholes. Um, well, I think any any career path is does has its own wibble wobble path. Definitely, of course, like it starts in like your your high school, your early college days. And I knew going into college that I wanted to do something within the arts that would help a lot of the issues that media has with poorly representing people of color. So I didn't know what that looked like, and I was one of those people that just took a lot of classes in college, um, which is why I ended up just triple majoring and single minoring, because <laughs> I was really interested in studying more things about the Black cultural experience and how it works in the world and those power dynamics. So I was a Pan-African Studies major. I was really interested in what the art institution could do conceptually as far as creating more conversations around race and increasing cultural competency. So I was a drawing major, and I started to realize that the place where people were actually having conversations was more in the digital stream. So then I became a graphic design major. Um, and I realized I didn't know enough about media as a whole and how people thought and uh, how they interact together. So I, I also minored in communications just because I was taking all these courses and I was like, I might as well get degrees for all this. At the, that time too, like I was working as an assistant. I was an undergraduate research assistant in the neurodevelopmental science lab at UofL, which is where I went to school. And that lab, it's in the psychology department. When I got to the point of graduation, I was offered a full-time job there as a research analyst. They were like, Jessica, we really like your work. Uh, we really like how you do things. You're great with this population and you have um, the skills to like learn more about this. And so when I became a research analyst in that same lab, that's when I started working more with the grad students and helping more with data collection. Eventually, I started even testing the participants coming in the lab. So it was kind of in this really like data heavy, technical, you know, uh, sort of world after coming from all these like art backgrounds in my college years, which like with some couple of like research methods courses in there from Pan-African Studies. But I wasn't exactly fulfilled transitioning into this this um, very science sort of life. 
So I was doing a lot more volunteer work in my spare time. And so as I was like doing volunteer work with organizations like Kentucky Toward the Commonwealth, the Network Center for Community Change, organizations like that, Kentucky Toward the Commonwealth is a statewide organization that has multiple different platforms, whether it has to do with voter registration and reenacting vote for former felons, or if it has anything to do with like economic justice, environmental justice, racial justice. And I was specifically on the team for economic justice, which got me tapped into a lot of very specific projects that had technical components because you can't say economic justice without there being money. Money means you have to study policies over and so on. So I started doing this community organizing work on the side of being uh, being a researcher. And because of one specific project, I found myself bringing all these worlds together. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that project? Yeah, so Smoketown is a neighborhood that I'm from. It's the oldest historically black neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. It's the only place where African Americans were allowed to live after the Civil War. And of course, like the name Smoketown itself could be derived from a number of things. Like it could be because there were factories that were in the area or also just because of the color of the population. But it was, it definitely has a long tradition of being denied the entitlements of the average neighborhood in our city. So it has current, it, well, it kind of, it's, it's, it's always kind of been like this, that the infrastructure is not tended to by the, the city. So we don't have like a lot of connected sidewalks. We have a lot of urban decay where we have crumbling sidewalks and uh, not all of our street lights work, stuff like that. But my family's been in the neighborhood for years. It's where I grew up and it's where my family still is. And um, they have like a, a family business there. It was about about five years ago that Hope Six took effect in our city. And Hope Six was an initiative that came out of the Obama administration. And what it was meant to do was to take public housing units in cities, completely like tear them all the way down because the quality was poor, and then rebuilt new apartments that had um, mixed income housing, right? So then you can start stimulating economies in neighborhoods that have low opportunity. So Hope 6 hit Louisville. A lot of our, our housing projects started to go down. And one such housing project was uh, Shepherd Square. Shepherd Square went out and a lot of people were spread out ar- around the city, a lot of people that lived in those specific public housing units. So with the fall of that, there was a ripple effect. So once that public housing was gone, the neighborhood was still predominantly black, but the only community center in the neighborhood wasn't able to meet its requirements for continued funding from our city because they were serving a certain percentage of the population. But hey, now we just lost a certain, like this whole chunk uh, of folks that had to be pushed out. So that that community center actually had to close its doors. And that community center had been in the neighborhood since those early years of the formation of Smoketown. And it actually held a lot of the historical uh, photos, um, quilts, all these different pieces. And so all those pieces, so they wouldn't be lost, were given to the University of Louisville. So they exist in the archives at the University of Louisville. They're no longer displayed in the community. So 
So, <laughs> you already got, so far, what, we got a huge displacement of folks. We've got a lost community center. We've got uh, all these different historical elements that are now, like, hidden. Not, they're not hidden away. You could request to see them. But if you don't know where they are and, you, and you know, if, you, if you're not familiar with the University of Louisville, you'll probably get lost anyways and just give up. But, um, yeah, that are, it's no longer present in the community. It's no longer present in the community. So all those things had happened, and there's, there all of a sudden was this huge interest from developers to really start doing something with this area of town. Smoketown is located right next to the downtown area, and so there was this now there was now this opportunity to expand the urban core, and so developers were able to start buying up land and property because it was already pretty cheap because the neighborhood has does not has not had many resources come in, and so they were buying up houses in bundles, and some folks. Were we're, we're trying to rebrand it. So, like I said, Smoketown's been around since the 1800s and has a very, like, strong culture and, and community. But some folks try to rename it um, the Creative Innovation Zone so they can start marketing this neighborhood to, towards, like, you know, our modern-day creatives, our millennials, right? Because uh, there's there's definitely an interest for folks to, to move into more walkable neighborhoods. People want to live next to their shops. People want to be closer to downtown. And, and, and with all these different things happening in the neighborhood, you had developers spending all this money to buy property, spending money to try to get like web, web addresses for neighborhoods that didn't even exist yet. <laughs> you had the Shepherd Square went down, but they were now building the new apartments. And so that was a multi-million dollar project, right? That's using federal funding. And with all this interest and focus on what's going to happen with Smoketown, there was a, a organization, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, that noticed that this was happening, and we collectively uh, got together and decided that we were going to do a survey of folks in the neighborhood to start asking them what were their priorities and concerns. There's all this money coming in. What do you think should be done with it? This October 24th and 25th, come to Toronto and join Design Thinkers, Canada's largest annual graphic design conference. Design Thinkers speakers examine and discuss the trends, strategies, and processes that are driving our industry. Attendees have the opportunity to explore the evolving role of design and how it is creating meaningful impacts for business, culture, and social innovators. Design Thinkers is a must-attend event of the year for visual communicators. To learn more and register, visit designthinkers.com. We also asked them, what are assets in the neighborhood that could use more resources, more funding? Uh, we, we were collecting demographic information. We actually found out that about 86 or 87 percent of Smoketown is actually registered to vote and votes pretty regularly. So it was like, so this is already like a very civically engaged community. So it wasn't far from our mind, like what the potential of this project could be. But our initials thought when we were collecting this data was that we were going to create a report that we'd put in the hands of these developers that were in our neighborhood all the time. The, the, the office for Kentuckians for the, for the Commonwealth, uh, the Jefferson County chapter is actually in Smoketown. So it was like we were seeing this every day. We we're seeing these changes every day. So we knew we wanted to create this report to put in the hands of policymakers and developers. But what ended up happening was we also created this opportunity where we're literally putting these, like, I have, for lack of a better term, weapons. I can't think of any other word that I think functions in the, in the way that I intend it. Yeah. But 
people that were already active and engaged that gave more than a damn about what happens in their neighborhood uh, now had something they could refer to whenever they were in community meetings, public forums, all that stuff. And because of the rising tension about what the report was was showing and, and the energy in the community, the policymakers had no way of escape. They had to come and, and listen to what was going on and they had to actively participate because now the media was watching, right? We did all sorts of events. The Neighborhood Association was revitalized, but... Yeah, the council member for that area, uh, he actually ended up not running the next year. <laughs> That's right. And the <laughs> and the people that wanted to become the council member for the district were under extreme scrutiny, which was lovely. It was actually it was choice. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, any development project that happened in the area, it uh, people had to engage with the, the community. They had to go to the neighborhood association meetings. Otherwise, we'd end up protesting and then it'd be in the news again. Well, the last question for you is what's next? I, I want to find new ways to intervene with the way that my city is planned because local change that is the plan is the change that you can see more readily. And I think that gives more hope and continues to galvanize people's investment and interest in social impact design. You know, there's so many, so many people that should be allowed to participate in content creation and should be allowed to be the creators of their own narrative, to educate, uh, to explore their own perspective through information design. Because as we know it today, information design is, is more rigid. And the real problem that has to do with policy change specifically is that the folks in charge don't have enough empathy. And uh, even if they have a front of compassion, they utilize just shallow promises and a lot of like really high-minded rhetoric to kind of make it sound like, oh, I have your best interest at heart, but without having to actually commit to anything. And and so like that that's a huge problem within any type of social impact or community good, anything. A lot of people that subscribe on know how to co-opt the language, but their intentions of actually making an impact and giving a project sustainability and longevity is just not there. So actually getting authentic work that is equitable is the challenge. I, like, I feel like if we're going to have an affordable housing program, it should be folks that have had issues with that problem because they're going to know like, OK, so these are the specific problems. You don't want necessarily always all the leads of a movement or organization to just never have experienced it because that's when you start to get a lot of these shallow projects within community, which for the populations that you're working in actually discourages and diminishes a lot of that trust. And so you become uh, essentially a, there's a lot of, of, of dirty terms for people that do shallow work, stuff like asshole, which um, there's a, a great blog called Nonprofit AF that describes like the people that go into communities saying, I'm going to do this survey because this great good will come after you just fill out this survey, do another survey. And so those people are called assholes if they don't actually fulfill on those promises. And that happens all the time. And, and it gets masked with, oh, well, the bureaucracy and the red tape, that's why we can't do that. And whenever you, you give that community that's constantly being pushed to the side, constantly being forced to the margins and devalued in what their priorities and concerns are. When you give them the power to argue against those shallow excuses or to even like start 
critically challenging, critically and publicly challenging some of these like high minded promises that are made to them, then that's when you start to see change because nobody really, really does that. That's why you need the weapons of data, because let's be real, like policy change doesn't happen unless there are concerns, but concerns don't get met without a study, right, within government. There needs to be some type of data. And our our country is really used to collecting data by watching people suffer for an extended period of time and then collecting like some type of qualitative, mostly quantitative, like the, the hard numbers, quote unquote sort of data to try to prove that, oh yeah, when when you take away subsidies, people's lives actually become worse. (laughs) I don't think we need to experiment with people's lives to prove that, but if you give people the data to refute the argument that that study even needs to exist, there's nothing that can be argued, especially if it's done in the public sphere. To learn more about Jessica, visit jessicabellamy.design or follow her Instagram at jessicabellamy.design. First Things First is produced by Max Cotter. Frontier Media is a part of Frontier, a design office based in Toronto, Canada. We believe that design is more than visual. It's a process of exploration, discovery, sketching, prototyping, iteration, and refinement. That process can help create a better world. Our mission is to help others understand how that goal can be accomplished. To do this, we use design to create better and more purposeful products. We publish a magazine and produce this podcast to explore and celebrate the risks people take in the process of creating things that are original and worthwhile. And we work with clients to help them define their purpose and tell their story. To learn more, visit www.frontier.is. First Things First is recorded in Toronto and Vancouver at the Design Thinkers Conference, organized by our founding partners at RGD. The Association of Registered Graphic Designers, who represent over 3,800 design practitioners, including firm owners, freelancers, managers, educators, and students. Through RGD, Canadian designers exchange ideas, educate and inspire, set professional standards, and build a strong, supportive community dedicated to advocating for the value of design.